bottom line is, if government officials, authorities, know that there's a danger and they fail to act, they are responsible for the predictable results of their conduct. And that's the standard we will apply regardless of the political party or the government that's involved. And that's the standard that accompanies us in this struggle for justice at the border. We're at witnessattheborder.org and the Facebook group. Please join us. And thank you, Dennis, for making this space available. And thank you. I embrace un abrazo for the Haiti Action Center and for Pierre and, and his colleagues and compas and for Miguel and Francisco and for the United Farm Workers. We stand with them. Come join us through the National Lawyers Guild San Francisco Bay Area chapter. Beautiful. Thank you, Camila Perez-Bacillo, who is now the executive director for the San Francisco Bay Area chapter of the NLG, working along with Witness at the Border and other crucial groups. Uh, Camila, we always appreciate uh, the time you give us, and people really appreciate what you have to say. Thank you. Thanks for joining us Thank you us so again. much, Dennis. Un abrazo, mi hermano. Thank you. Un abrazo. Thank you. And, uh, well... That does wrap it up for another edition of Flashpoints. And uh, we broadcast every weekday from 5 to 6 over the People's Network, the Pacifica Radio Network. Stay with us. And that wraps it up for another episode of Flashpoints. Our executive producer is Dennis Bernstein. Senior producers are Miguel Gavilan Molina and Kevin Pina. Technical director is Mike Biggs. Special thanks to producer and engineer Rada Keel. For previous episodes, go to kpfa.org or flashpoints.net. For questions or comments, email dennis at kpfa.org. Thank you for listening. Judy Berry from Earth First, and when I'm in Portland, I listen to non-commercial community radio, KBOO Portland. No compromise in defense of the truth. Attention KBOO members. Voting for our board of directors is about to begin. And if you want to learn more about the candidates, you should tune into KBOO's on-air candidate forum on Tuesday, September 6th at 5 p.m. Each candidate will tell you why they deserve your vote for a seat on the Board of Directors. Again, that's KBOO's on-air candidate forum on Tuesday, September 6th at 5 p.m. Right here on member-driven community radio, KBOO Portland.
Welcome to Beyond Your Front Door, your adventure guide to the Central Oregon coast. I'm your host, Dina Pavlis. I'm pleased to be on the phone today with popular Oregon Coast author William L. Sullivan. Bill is the author of 22 books and numerous articles about Oregon, including an Oregon Trails feature column for the Eugene Register Guard and the Salem Statesman Journal. A fifth-generation Oregonian, Bill began hiking at the age of five and has been exploring new trails ever since. Bill, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks. Hi. I'm so happy you could join me today. You began hiking as a young child. Was it your parents who fostered your love of the outdoors, or did you discover hiking in some other way? Well, I just grew up in Oregon. Uh, My father was the editor of the Salem newspaper, but everybody in Oregon goes hiking and camping. It's just what you do. So I guess I didn't really hike or camp more than anybody else, particularly. But then then I studied creative writing and uh, actually tried started writing novels and realized it's really very hard to uh, sell uh, novels if you're like an unknown author, and then started writing hiking guidebooks, and turns out, wow, my writing ability and my background in a little bit of background in hiking made these books actually maybe better. (laughs) And so uh, I've become well-known now as the hiking guru in Oregon, but in fact, I actually do a a lot of writing and a lot of hiking, too. Yeah, you have 22 books, so it's quite prolific, and and many that are not just hiking books. But before we start talking about your hiking books, I have a couple more questions. One is that I find it so interesting that you and your wife built a cabin using no power tools that is in a remote location of the Oregon Coast Range. In fact, so remote that you don't have any roads in or anything. And I'm wondering, what was that like? Uh, Well, I guess my father got this property as a he he, he went, I, I said he was um, the editor of the paper in Salem and in the 1960s he had to do all these headlines about oh, nuclear war threats and Vietnam and riots and so he bought this property as a survivalist retreat because uh, it has no road uh, it's 53 acres on a remote river north of Florence and then quickly realized that he really wouldn't ever go there no matter what because this is a guy who wears suits and wingtip <laughs> shoes. But then came the 70s and my wife and I were, I was writing for the Mother Earth News at the time where everybody was back to nature and stuff. So I said, we'll go build a log cabin there the pioneer way. And my grandfather had been a, a millwright in Oregon and so he, he had the tools. So we got a, a crosscut saw from him and the, and the, ads and an axe and went and then uh, built this cabin for $400 and uh, still live there in the summer and still have to hike in a mile and a half. No cell phone coverage there, no no mail service, no internet. <laughs> it's a great place to write. I have a typewriter there. I can get writing done and completely unbothered. Yeah, I saw that. There's a short video on your website and I saw that you have a writing cabin that you built as well and that you use a typewriter. Do you prefer a typewriter over a computer in general, or do you use both? Well, I actually started writing uh, before there were computers. Right. And then I wound up writing a textbook about how to use, uh, to write with computers, and and I I still kind of do prefer the typewriter when I'm doing fiction. You have to compose your thoughts a bit more because it comes out in ink on a page. Uh, later, you're going to, you know, enter it all into a computer and edit it and fix it up there. But that first draft for fiction coming out in a typewriter 
I think the thoughts are more organized. Right. Yeah, computer, anything, you can write anything you want, but you have to think about it with a typewriter. That's definitely true. And you don't need power to use a typewriter, which is helpful out in your remote cabin. But yeah, see, at the log cabin, I built an extra little cabin in the woods uh, because I could get away from the, the hectic life at the log cabin. Right. And you have a book about your 25-year adventure of building your cabin called Cabin Fever, Notes from a Part-Time Pioneer. So I just wanted to mention that. I personally have not read that book, but after researching for this interview and discovering this, my husband and I both have purchased that book and we're interested to give it a read. It sounds exciting. Yeah, it, it, it is uh, amusing. Uh, and there's a lot going on. <laughs> I've also done it as, a, as an audio book, and you can listen to me tell the whole story there. Part of the uh, adventure there is as we were building the cabin, we found out the real reason my parents got this property so cheap. It turns out the previous homesteader there had been murdered. He'd been shot. Oh, my gosh. And there was a ghost story. No one wanted this place. Um, so when our kids started complaining about this ghost in the woods, <laughs> We decided we needed to lay the ghost to rest, and the way you do that is to solve the crime. So we started interviewing the neighbors in the valley. Now, there are only six families that live in that whole valley, and it had to be one of them. And they all claim they know who it was, but they all thought it was somebody different. So we're collecting clues for 25 years, and it's a big joke. And then we find the missing witness and realize who it was. So in that book, we, we build a cabin, and we, and we raise a family. But we're also trying to solve this real murder mystery. So that book will appeal to people like my husband, who's very interested in how you built the cabin, and then people like me who love mysteries, especially crime mysteries. Yeah. Well, the thing is, with real mysteries, the clues don't come necessarily in the right order. And at the end, you're not 100 percent sure. It's not like Perry Mason, where they jump up in the courtroom and say, I did it. Right. That doesn't happen in real life. That inspired me then to write a series of murder mysteries where I could, where they're fictional, and I could put them everything in the right order. So I did one about D.B. Cooper, for example. Right. Um, That's a really great book. Oh, you read that one. I have. Oh. That's a really great book. So, yeah, I, I, oh, go I ahead. I had a lot of fun with that one. I just have to ask one question for my husband. He wanted to know how you got that giant stove into that cabin with no roads. We carried it in a mile and a half. Oh, my gosh. You can take it apart a little bit, but mostly not. And so we just hump it for 100 feet and set it down and rest, and then another 100 feet and set it down and rest <laughs> all, all the way in. That's really remarkable. Well, Bill, as I mentioned, you have 22 books behind you, and you have five books in a 100 Hikes series, and I'd love to chat a bit about the one that covers the Oregon coast and the coast range. And I just want yeah. to confess at the start that I don't have the most current version of this book. And that's because I have a well-loved and well-used 2009 version that I filled with notes and memories, and I just can't bear to part with it. My book, in fact, it's old enough to include passages about being able to walk to the top of several of the lighthouses here on the coast, which you are no longer allowed to do at most of them. Yeah. And so if anything has changed, and I ask you a question that doesn't make sense, just let me know. One, okay. <laughs> one of the things that makes your books super appealing to me is that they are divided into driving trips, which are things I can see from my car, which is great when I was driving my parents around. And it also included viewpoints and museums, but also the hiking trails. And I'm wondering, do you have a few favorite travel trips or trails on the Central Coast that you'd like to share about? Oh, 
well, uh, yeah, the, maybe I should talk about some of the ones that are not in your version of the book, but are in the new version. Okay, that'd be great. Uh, there have been a bunch of new things. One, uh, for example, the Depot Bay, a little bit north uh, toward Lincoln City. There, there's a, a little city park with the giant old trees that most people don't know about. And you can do a hike all the way around the bay. But it's also north of Depot Bay, they've built a new section of the Oregon Coast Trail. Now, the Oregon Coast Trail is supposed to be, you know, 360 miles, uh, the whole length of the coast, 200 miles of that are on sand, and uh, currently about 40 miles are just following the shoulder of Highway 101. Well, the legislature passed a bill authorizing local communities and volunteers to finish the trail, and they're working on that. And north of Depot Bay, they've done a sample of what it would be like if they finished it using the highway right-of-way. And this is interesting because mm. the Highway 101, the state actually owns, oh, about 100 feet on either side of the highway. And on the ocean side of the highway, there's room to put a trail through the woods uh, or the sand. And it often has a very nice view of the ocean. You don't hear the traffic. You still have a trail and you don't have to buy new land. Uh, so that's what they've done north of uh, Depot Bay and elsewhere. They're starting to do this on the coast, too. So they'll have a connected route the whole length of the coast. And several of those new sections are what would be uh, new in the new version of the book that just came out in May. That's fantastic to hear. You know, another spot for the Oregon Coast Trail that's problematic is the tunnel that's just south of Hasita Head. And many people end up taking a taxi to go through that tunnel because you can't really walk through it and you can't really get through on the beach there. I'm a volunteer up at the lighthouse, and one of the things that the Keepers of Hasita Head Light Station nonprofit group is hoping to do is there's an old wagon trail that the keepers used to take from the lighthouse up over the mountain that then would drop you down onto Baker Beach. And they are looking at possibly trying to work to get that wagon trail restored and open to become part of the coast trail so people would be able to come up and over that mountain and not have to take a taxi or risk their safety to get through that tunnel that is a great idea that wagon road was actually the way that they brought in the parts for that lighthouse and they landed the ship with all the parts in florence and because they couldn't land it there at the Cape Creek Beach because the tricky currents. That's why they call that area the devil's elbow because that elbow shape thing had a devilish current in it. So instead they brought the parts on that wagon road. If it's still in public uh, ownership, that would be a terrific place for a new piece of the Oregon Coast Trail. Yeah, it would be great. And you know, it was a nine hour trip for the keepers to get to Florence from there to go up and over that. And then of course they'd have to go along Baker Beach there at low tide. And so they would have to take at least a 24-hour trip to wait for low tide the next day. And it was harrowing. There's many stories that the keepers tell in their logbooks. Um, one time they were coming to roadie days, of all things, coming for the weekend. And the horses got spooked and they took off. The parents fell out of the carriage. The children were still in it, the wagon. And the horses ran and they turned and it, they broke off and the wagon slammed into a tree and everybody was injured. And so it was definitely not for the faint of heart to live and travel um, as a keeper's family back then. Well, another... Oh, sorry. Oh, I was going to tell you about another section. Yeah, go ahead. Definitely. Uh, Please do. That's new. And that's up at Neocani Mountain, which is uh, north of Tillamook. And there they've uh, 
that built a, a three-mile stretch of the Oregon Coast Trail that goes from Neocani Mountain down to Manzanita, and it crosses private timberland and private land, and they managed to just get rights of way and agreements with the people. They're all cooperating together. There was some money donated, but this cooperative effort to finish the trail is paying off, and people are see a, a long-range value in this. Neocani Mountain is interesting for other reasons, too. They, they finally found the shipwreck that uh, was so created a legend. And, uh, of course, the movie The Goonies, uh, they found timbers of that shipwreck in caves at the base of Neocani Mountain. And they don't know where the ship actually wrecked and if there is a treasure, but they've identified that it is the, the San Cristo de Burgos that wrecked there in 1693, wow. a Spanish ship that would have had treasure. So the legend of Neocani Mountain is true. <laughs> I think the real treasure there, though, is this uh, new section of the Oregon Coast Trail that shows that people can work together and finish it if they all have a good vision. Yeah, that's fabulous. And, you know, that brings to mind one other thing. Last December, I was in the studio with Louise Markarine, who helped with the new Corvallis to Sea Trail. And I was wondering if you have plans to update your guidebook to include that complete trail now that you can walk all the way from Corvallis out to the coast. It's already in the book. Okay. Yep, it's in well, the new version that you don't have. <laughs> <laughs> I need to get that new version, and I promise you I will do that. I'll just still hang on to my beloved ones that has all my notes in it. I'll admit I, I don't feature it uh, prominently because it's not all that great for for hiking. Uh, day hiking, it's really, uh, really good for mountain biking. And uh, part of the problem is that it's mostly on uh, logging roads. Uh, between Corvallis and uh, and the beach, and there aren't that many places that you can camp either. So it's mm, still a work in progress, but that's another example of a vision that people worked together and made happen. Yeah, really great. It's a great story behind that. I really enjoyed hearing how they brought it all together. Well, Bill, I'm curious, what are some of the biggest challenges that you face when you are putting together a travel guide? Well, I suppose finding new trails and and keeping up to date with you know all these fires and new permit systems and I wind up having to update the books every year and, and I cover every trail in Oregon I've hiked every trail I could find in the state for this series and then go back and rehike them uh, on a schedule uh, but uh, what I found helps is that I give away a free book to the first person who sends in an update. Uh, and in summer, I wind up giving away a book a, a, a week about. Uh, but uh, uh, when I started doing this, I would sometimes get angry emails from people who said, the trail has changed. They've moved the trailhead, and you now have to have a permit. And I'm so mad your book didn't. I'm, and I started sending these people a free book uh, thanking them for letting me know, and it turned them around completely. Then they would r write back, "I've never gotten a free book. I'm so excited about this now. I will uh, now. I'm going to be looking for more updates to see if I can get another free book." And I wind up with this whole network of unpaid spies out there working for me. <laughs> I think that's great. What a great solution and a great way to have people feel like they're part of the process as well. Yeah, and then I post all the updates. Uh, on the on my website for free. This is so actually a lot of the changes that we've been talking about you'd find at, at OregonHiking.com, 
uh, there's a trail updates page and I post there all the updates for the last five years for free so that's you know if if your book isn't very old then you don't you have to panic and buy a new one every year um, even though I do update them every year or, to, or so the, you can just check uh, OregonHiking.com and see what's new that's great. You know, your website is fabulous. I just want to encourage people, OregonHiking.com, to go out there and look around because there's quite a bit of information there about other things that you do, um, including the fact that you have an English degree from Cornell University and that you studied linguistics at Germany's Heidelberg University. And I find that fascinating. And then you earned an MA in German literature. And so you mentioned that you enjoy reading foreign language novels. I just find that so fascinating, this whole background. And I was wondering if you just wanted to share anything about that. Well, I'm, I'm only really fluent in about four languages, but I can read in eight. And this uh, helps me with these historical novels I've been writing about the Viking Age. My wife's background is Danish, and when we both speak Danish, so we were able to translate the sagas from Old Norse about Viking ships that have been excavated in Scandinavia. And this seems like a long ways apart from my other interests about, you know, hiking guidebooks, but... Uh, I've done a, a series of three of these historical novels that uh, required the knowledge of Old Norse, and then a lot of trips to Scandinavia. We have relatives there, and uh, looking not only at museums, but all these excavation sites where they've been dig digging up old Viking ships. And if you're able to match the excavation to one of the sagas, then you know whose ship it was, Wow! and you can tell the actual story of the... Uh, in one case, the queen, a Viking queen who sailed that ship a thousand years ago. And, and I wind up in each of these books uh, telling uh, alternating chapters with two stories, one of the excavation of the ship and then the other, the, uh, the Vikings who sailed it and what they were up to. There's three so far. One's about the Norwegian Vikings, one about the Danish Vikings and Harold Bluetooth, and the latest about the Swedish Vikings, who conquered Russia and founded Ukraine. So that's a yeah another series. Some people are only know me from that and not from the hiking books or anything else. Yeah, your books are cover quite a wide variety of things. You have your murder mysteries and then the guidebooks and these books, and it's just, it's so fascinating and interesting to me. And I think it's interesting to think that people know you in one respect, but not the other. So that's fun to think about. Well, you are the keynote speaker for this year's Festival of Books here in Florence. That's coming up on September 24th. And I'm wondering if you wanted to share a little bit about what you plan to present there. Well, yeah, actually the talk I'm giving uh, is called D.B. Cooper and the Exploding Whale. And you're wondering, how do those two weird events ever get connected? But uh, that, uh, the subtitle is Folk Heroes of the Northwest. So I'm going to be talking about, well, about D.B. Cooper for one thing. I did write a novel about him. Uh, this is the guy who parachuted with a quarter million dollars and got away with it. And you're thinking, well, on one, one hand, he's a criminal. He uh, threatened to blow up an airplane, and he stole all this money. On the other hand, he's kind of a popular hero because he got away with it. He didn't hurt anybody, and he stole money from an airline company that everybody hated. Uh, and the exploding whale, I don't know, is that, is that a folk hero? I have a couple of iffy things that are just fascinating stories, like the Willamette meteorite and 
Joaquin Miller, his brother founded the city of Florence, George Miller, and Joaquin Miller was the first grand marshal of the first rhododendron festival there, but he became world famous as a cowboy poet, and I have a whole novel I've written about him, too, but uh, he was a guy who actually rode the Pony Express and, and uh, fought in Indian wars on both sides because he had an Indian family, too. He uh, turns out he really had shot a sheriff, and he had two wives at once, but then was elected county judge. So he's kind of an unlikely folk hero, too, but I figure let's tell some interesting stories about uh, strange people and events in Oregon history. And uh, in a way, it ties together a lot of the subjects that I've been enjoying, uh, enjoyed writing about in my books, the Oregon history, uh, quirky events and people, and uh, and then it's also really about storytelling. That's really what writing is. Even writing hiking guidebooks, it's really a trick of making it into a, a story that's fun to listen to or to to read. So that's what I'll be talking about there on uh, Saturday, September 24th at the Florence Center. Yeah, that's at the Florence Event Center. It begins at 4.15 p.m., and it's free and open to the public, so I encourage people to come down. I definitely will be there. It sounds fascinating. I'll be autographing my books all day. Oh, great. Day at the festival, too, so if you want to go take a look at the variety that I have, um, they'll all be there. I think I'll come in and get my new Oregon Coast Guide. I need to get an updated one. <laughs> See, I shamed you into that. You did. And, you know, I felt so like, I was like, do I admit that I have this? Or will you find it endearing that I have this copy that I've kept all these notes in all these years? Or will you be horrified? I wasn't really sure. But I thought I have to confess. No, no that is. It, it is endearing. And I can see why I don't want to part with it. Yeah, yeah. Well, I will be there and I'll come get the book and have you sign it, which will be nice. And just to let people know, they can find out more information about that event at florencefestivalofbooks.org. Well, Bill, one of my favorite parts of this show is asking people to share a favorite memory or experience. And I'm wondering if you have a favorite memory or experience related to either hiking or writing that you would like to share. Wow. Uh, well, maybe it's one of the stories from Listening for Coyote. It may be my most famous book. It's the story of a thousand-mile hike I took across Oregon from the westernmost point of the state at Cape Blanco to the easternmost point of the state at uh, the bottom of Hell's Canyon. And I wanted to go visit all the wilderness areas so I could write guidebooks about them, but along the way I kept a journal of my adventures. And along the way I was held at gunpoint by marijuana growers, poisoned myself with mushrooms, and wound up hiking 40 miles a day through Hell's Canyon trying to outrun these October snowstorms. And that, I've narrated that one as an audio book as well. And I think that some of my uh, strangest and longest lasting memories come from that, uh, that wild experience of hiking a thousand miles across Oregon uh, all alone. And not go, doing just the Pacific Crest Trail, but going sideways, a route that I don't think anybody has ever done since. Right. Fabulous. And that is a fabulous book. 
I'm just going to take a moment to let listeners know if you tuned in late, you've been listening to Beyond Your Front Door, produced for the Pacifica Radio Network in the studios of KXCR here in beautiful downtown Florence, Oregon. I've been speaking today with author William Sullivan. Bill is the author of 22 books, including numerous travel and hiking guides. He also is the author of an Oregon Trails feature column for the Eugene Register Guard and the Salem Statesman Journal. Bill will be the keynote speaker at the Florence Festival of Books this September 24th. You can find out more about that event on florencefestivalofbooks.org. If you missed any portion of this show, you can find the entire show on soundcloud.com. Just search for Beyond Your Front Door, Oregon, and look for the wave. Bill, we are just about out of time. Is there anything else that you would like to share before we wrap up? Well, uh, before I head back to my log cabin to get some more writing done, it's been a pleasure to talk with you, and I look forward to seeing you in, uh, in Florence in September. Great. I will be there. Thanks so much for taking time to talk with me today, Bill. It's really been a pleasure. Thank you. Today's nature sound is... Stay tuned. I'll be back in 35 seconds to let you know who makes that sound. Listeners who use information from this program to venture outdoors do so at their own risk. Outdoor activities may be hazardous and must be carefully evaluated for each listener based on that person's circumstances. KXCR and the individuals involved in this program, Pacifica Radio, or any station airing this program do not assume any liability from the use of any information presented. By using this information to enjoy your own coastal adventures, you assume all potential risks and agree to hold Pacifica Radio, KXCR, its affiliates, any station airing this program and the presenters harmless from any resulting liability. Here's that nature sound again. It wasn't long ago that I was walking down at the port of Sayuslaw in Old Town, Florence, when I saw a small flock of geese. They were strikingly beautiful gray and black birds with white spotted bands or necklaces around their necks. Not being familiar with the species and not normally seeing them milling about on the grass in Old Town, I grabbed my bird app on the phone to identify them. It turns out they were brants, a type of small goose. Reading more about them, I discovered that here on the west coast, brants are known as black brants, and in the Atlantic region, where they are more brown in color with a less pronounced necklace, they are called Atlantic brants. When I was researching the internet for Brant calls, I found a video with the geese labeled as Brent geese and thought perhaps it was a typo, but further research uncovered the fact that they are called Brent geese in Europe. They nest in the Arctic and pass through our area during migration. I discovered some interesting facts about their breeding habits. For example, a Canadian study revealed that the geese tend to pair up with partners who have a similar amount of white in their necklaces. I certainly would be interested to know the natural reason behind that fact. The geese are socially monogamous and pair for life, but most females mate with additional males during their egg-laying period. After incubating for about 23 to 24 days, chicks are born fully covered in down. They begin walking, swimming, and feeding within one day, at which time they leave the nest. Join me next week when I'll be back in the studio with local author Tom Bach. This will be the third and final show in a trilogy of shows about his South Coast guidebooks. This week, we'll be talking about the best biking trails on the Southern Oregon coast, and that includes both road biking and mountain biking. Thanks to community radio stations in Oregon for airing this show, including KXCR in Florence, Oregon, and KBOO in Portland, Corvallis, and Hood River. 
And thanks to assistant producer Sharon Moodhart for help with today's show. And to local band Jumpin' the Rails, previously known as It's Just Us, for the theme song, Smith Chapel, used on this show. Learn more about Beyond Your Front Door on Facebook and Instagram at Beyond Your Front Door Oregon. And find us on SoundCloud.com to hear previously recorded shows from the past year. Thanks for tuning in today. I hope you have a great week and get some time beyond your front door. Charlotte, North Carolina, supporting community radio, radio that works for all of us. Hey everybody, thank you for tuning in to Coast Range Radio, a radio program of the Coast Range Association. My name is Andrew, and today we're talking with award-winning author, essayist, and commentator Robert Leo Heilman from Myrtle Creek, Oregon. Um, Bob is the author of several books, including Overstory Zero, Real Life in Timber Country, Children of Death, and The World Pool, a literary variety. He has also been a prolific contributor to guest columns in his local paper. Hey, welcome Bob, thanks for joining us on Coast Range Radio. Well, thank you for putting me on. Yeah, you know, I um, I came, recently came across your work um, when I uh, got an email from the Rural Organizing Project, and they republished a piece you did in the Daily Yonder, Broken Glass, Broken Trust, where you describe threats and violence, including two instances where your windows have been uh, recently broken out by a bullet and a brick in response to some of your writings. Um, and in that uh, piece, you write... Over the past 31 years, I have remained the only umpquin to publicly say that neighbors shouldn't threaten violence against each other over the, their political differences. And in your writing, you're publicly you know, challenging some ex- the extremism and fear you're seeing in your community. And um, you know, I was moved by the ending of your piece and wanted to reach out and have this conversation with you. You write, what is most troubling to me about these extremists is not the broken glass, but both here in my home in Washington, D.C., 
but the broken trust in each other in our democracy and that such fear inevitably brings. I just, I wanted to reach out and, and uh, maybe share your experiences with our listeners, um, kind of hear from from you what you've been dealing with. And just maybe we could start with, you know, you've been living in Myrtle Creek for over 30 years. Maybe give us a little grounding on, you know, what's changed over that time and, you know, what's been your experience like living and writing in Douglas County and being such a public voice and challenging some of this um, extremism and fear that you're you're seeing in your community. I've uh, lived in Myrtle Creek for 46 years now. Oh, wow. Uh, since 19, 1975. Uh, we came here in uh, May of 75, so 46 years. Uh, raised my son here. Uh, bought some property in uh, 1978. Paid it off. Uh, over a 30-year loan, so we've been around here for quite a while. Yeah, uh, it's <clears throat> I've worked here, I've uh, volunteered here quite a bit. It is the place where I learned to be a writer. Uh, it's it's a wonderful place. I love it, uh, but yes, it has been difficult at times watching the, the changes come along. The uh, early 1980s recession hit here very, very strongly. We lost an awful lot of uh, families, young families with children when people had to pack up and leave and go look for work. We were up to, uh, uh, at one point, all the way up to 20% unemployment in our county. So uh, that came along, then the houses, uh, stood empty for a while, for a few years, and then uh, slowly they began to fill up again, but this time with retirees. So that leaves you with a very different uh, population. And uh, in many ways, uh, the place has become a lot less rural. I often see it as a changeover from neighborliness. We used to rely very heavily on, on each other as neighbors, neighborliness. It's a, a neighbor is a word that comes from the German Nachbauer, the near farmer. And uh, so we just change over from that to a more civilized, uh, again, from the Latin civis, meaning a city, is, is really a good, good deal of what we're starting to see here. And uh, it's kind of a shame to see the old ways go away. Yeah. And you mentioned when we talked earlier, you know, that neighbors and folks re- reach out to you and say they're very thankful that you have, you know, written what you've written, that you're you're calling out some of these issues, and you're publicly trying to educate folks, and uh, they say that they're afraid to speak out themselves. What has, um, why have you kind of taken on this role as someone who is kind of putting yourself out there? Well, I'm, I'm a writer, <laughs> and as such, I don't really feel like I have much of a choice in the matter. Uh, it is, there really is, <clears throat> there really is such a thing as duty. And uh, part of my duty is, is to, uh, you know, I have this skill. I'm able to write stuff that people read. Uh, not all people who write can do that. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, so it's an important way for me to fill my role as a citizen, uh, as a member of this community, to uh, speak out uh, on various things that are going on. Again, uh, like the forest debates, 
the problems that we were having with the libraries, uh, which we're still having. And uh, these, uh, and again, lately, uh, because of the uh, increase in uh, openness of, of right-wing extremism around here, uh, much of the right-wing extremism has actually gone uh, mainstream in, in, in a way in that uh, local politicians have uh, bought into it very heavily. Uh, one of our county commissioners is a former uh, Tea Party figure. Uh, our state senator uh, was recently uh, involved with a group called uh, Citizens Against Tyranny, and uh, which was an anti-COVID uh, mandates uh, kind of thing. Uh, so these are all you know, uh, problems that we have here in this community. And if you only get a one-sided view of them, uh, if you don't uh, stop and bring an educated view, a view that uh, involves a, an awareness of history and of the origins of some of these notions, such as sovereign citizenship, I've written about that, uh, posse comitatus, uh, some of these things that uh, uh, become uh, you know, heavily involved uh, with uh, it, within our, our local politics. From your experience, what are maybe some suggestions you have for folks who would would like to you know fulfill some sort of maybe they have you know an ability to write or they have an ability to, to work with within their communities? Um, what are some um, lessons from your experience in, in doing that? How do you, uh, you know, get the courage to speak out even though there is these, uh, you're getting these these threats and uh, um, there's, there's danger involved in what you're doing? Well, I don't, uh, I don't really think of it as being courageous to tell you the truth. Uh, I've always been a loud mouth and uh, so that's just part of my nature. Uh, I'm a writer. I put things out there for the world. I'm used to that. I'm an artist, and uh, as such, I've spent many, many decades dealing with fear, with my own fear, fears uh, around uh, creativity. You can't be creative if you're fearful. So, uh, so I don't, I don't know. I don't see it as particularly <laughs> courageous or anything. But uh, by and large, our fears are never, almost never, let's put it that way, justified to begin with. And they are things that inhibit us, that keep us from being able to, to realize our, uh, our dreams. So I think really right now, the, the most radical thing you can tell people is don't be afraid because we have so much fear. Uh, being thrown at us constantly from so many different sources. Some of it's uh, political stuff, you know, the, the, the words of demagogues and such. Uh, some of it is just uh, commercially motivated, you know, uh, the, because scaring people about certain things is profitable, <laughs> you know, on, on the corporate level. And uh, from insecurities that we have about the, you know, this, that, and the other thing. Uh, 
the unwillingness to express ourselves publicly and that uh, uh, perhaps people won't like us, you know, uh, what happens then, you know, what will the neighbors think? So uh, these are, you know, these are genuine considerations that people have. And uh, I don't really know how anybody else overcomes them. But for me, it's just a habit. It's just, it's habitual. Uh, I couldn't do the work I do uh, if I was afraid. And that's that's really interesting because it also, you in your writing, you talk about the fear that is kind of, you know, being exploited in the rhetoric and the propaganda around some of this right-wing extremism and the violence that then comes from that. There's a kind of, there is a connection to there as far as the hatred coming from fear that's something you've you've uh, kind of learned from your experience working in your your community and communicating with people and research. Well, the, as a writer, human nature is my stock and trade. Yeah, <laughs> this is, yeah. This is what I work with, right? Uh, I'm an essayist, uh, so I ponder things, and uh, much of what I ponder is uh, the question of uh, what makes us human. And uh, how do our, our emotions affect our thinking? You know, these kinds of questions. So that's, again, it's, it, it comes with the turf. And uh, I truly do believe, uh, this may be a bit irrelevant, I suppose, but that everyone uh, of us are artists, that we are all have something that we can do that will contribute uh, to our society, our community, um, by creating things which are beautiful. Uh, in my case, I try to write beautifully and uh, usefully because the, the two are, are closely connected, uh, utility and, and uh, sheer beauty. I heard a Dominican theologian one time uh, he had a little rap about uh, creativity and uh, related it to uh, the book of Genesis, the notion that uh, God created humankind in his own image. And uh, it, his rap was, well, what does that mean exactly, the image of God? And his answer was uh, that we are creative. We are probably the most single most creative species on the planet and uh, when you're doing that you're doing what you as a human being are are meant to be doing and then I'm thinking about creativity as far as you know, building community um, and building trust um, in the, the the creation of that what is what are some of the techniques you use in your community to build that trust it's something that you know you call out in your piece from your experience, what are what, you know? What are some things you do in your 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 place there in Myrtle Creek to to build that community trust and be creative in community building? You can't help your community without being out in it. You see, uh, there's this crazy search for metaphorical common ground, uh, uh, and uh, there's it's, it's silly. To, to go looking for metaphorical common ground. 
the only way to do any good is by walking on real ground, uh, walking around the place where you live. So getting involved in community activities is the way you establish personal relationships. And, uh, you know, go out and volunteer at the food bank and help hand, hand out food boxes, uh, coach a little league team, uh, teach children how to play chess, uh, you know, uh, river cleanup day, you know, all of these sorts of community actions, communal things that go on. Uh, you know, uh, every little town around here has uh, summer uh, parties, you know, summer festival things that they do. And, uh, you know, just even participating in those, just going to, you know, Pioneer Days or the Sawdust Jubilee or the Summer Festival uh, or the Blackberry Festival, you know, these, these sorts of things puts you out there in the crowd talking to people, meeting people, getting to where you recognize each other. And uh, that's very important. You know, you can't really do a whole hell of a lot of good in the world unless that's where you're at, uh, sitting around and theorizing it and, and about things and uh, making plans and uh, all that kind of stuff, big plans, the bigger the plan, Generally speaking, the more worthless it is. So, uh, the, I, I'm a big believer in, in uh, interpersonal relationships. I guess it'd be a, a fancy way of saying that. But uh, getting to know your neighbors, sharing work with them, because uh, I'm a big believer in work. You know, this is how we get things done. And then, you know, you can bring up maybe a more difficult conversation when there you have a, maybe a baseline. Well, exactly. You, 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 you know, respect is earned. It's not given automatically, you know, in order to be respectable, you have to be respectful, right? So <laughs> this is what you have to do. You have to respect your neighbors, you know, regardless of what their, what their outlook or opinions happen to be. Uh, and it's necessary because you share the same place and the place itself, meaning the, the place as a physical geographical thing and also as a community or a group of people who all are in proximity to each other and interact with each other all the time. You, you have to, uh, you know, you, you have to get out there and mingle uh, and be part of it. You, you can't isolate yourself from it and expect to do much in the way of good in the world. It makes me think you know, we have the interpersonal, the local community, the you know local politics, but then how does that play out in you know your experience? You've worked in the timber industry. I'm just thinking as an example. You know, we have these large scale kind of forces that also have huge impacts on how you know the living conditions of, of people, the, the environment, the condition of our, you know, waterways and forests, you know, how do we, how do we work on those types of issues or how do we handle, you know, these institutional, maybe like big Wall Street investment-based timber companies who own vast amounts of land that are absentee landowners, 
you know, federal, federal lands, public lands, what's the, it's a kind of a big question, but how does it scale from there, you know, from what we're talking about in community in place? Well, uh, you know, they say all, all politics is local. Uh, yeah. I, I think that's very true. Uh, yes, uh, people can, can organize protests. You can write letters to your congressman and you know, do all those kinds of usual things that people do. It's tremendously difficult. Uh, we really need to figure out some way of giving corporations a conscience, by and large, and the larger the organization, more likely it is to be sociopathic, uh, truly uh, sociopathic, very narrow-minded, focused on a very small uh, moral considerations. You know, if the extent of your reasoning is profit is good and what gets in the way of it is bad, and that's it, that's all you're taking into consideration, then that's a problem. Henry David Thoreau pointed it out back in 1848 in uh, Civil Disobedience when he wrote, it's truly enough said that a corporation has no conscience, but a corporation of conscientious men is a corporation with a conscience. So how do we do that? A very famous comparison, for example, is uh, uh, Costco versus Walmart, right? Uh, two completely different approaches to how you deal with your employees and the public. You know, Costco treats their people really well. They have a very small turnover. Production kind of stuff goes really well for them because there's loyalty there. Uh, Walmart, they, they don't care if you live or die. They simply don't, you know. To them, it's bottom line stuff, totally bottom line, you know, that which increases profits is we are, we are going to do. Uh, that which gets in the way of it, we'll, we will not do. So uh, it's a question of, of uh, you know, uh, can, we, can we do it? If we can't do that, if we don't figure out how to do that, we will not survive the 21st century. In your experience in, you know, living in Myrtle Creek and the heart, you know, of Tim, the, what is uh, Douglas County, the uh, timber capital of the nation, what's the, what's the on the ground discussion as far as, you know, big companies, the warehousers, the Roseburg forest products, is there loyalty there? Is there, yeah. Well, when it, when it comes to, to Rosie, as it's known locally, uh, it used to be Roseburg lumber company <laughs> and they keep changing their name now uh, but uh, there was a big strike in 1989 uh, during the recessions of the 1980s uh, the company went to their workers uh, they are unionized workers went to them and asked for wage cuts and made a promise that they would uh, restore the level of, of wages uh, after the recession came about. Um, they did not fulfill that promise. The union went out on strike. It was a very bitter strike. Went on for five months. And in the end, they ended up signing uh, a contract that was uh, worse than the one they went out on strike over. 
because everybody, they just could not sustain uh, the, the strike. Uh, I remember talking to uh, one of their management uh, people who, who keeps track of, of you know, the, the money end of things uh, there uh, one time. And uh, he said that because they lost the loyalty of the workers, they ended up uh, losing whatever gain they had made by cutting the wages in decreased productivity. Uh, so that's interesting. You know, loyalty actually pays if you have workers who, who are willing to work a couple more minutes into their break just to make sure that they get this last little uh, pallet load uh, secured, you know, uh, these kinds of things. It, it pays. It's good for, for business. But that's a difficult one to get across if, you know, you're coming at it from uh, a uh, master of business administration uh, kind of background and never have actually spent any time uh, working in the mill. <laughs> yeah, know? yeah. So uh, this is part of the, you know, the, the operating on theory rather than experience. Uh, Rosie used to belong to uh, Kenneth Ford. Uh, people loved him. They called him Pappy Ford, in fact, you know. And uh, he worked his way up. He started out with a dump truck and ended up with a multi-million dollar uh, business that he owned outright, completely. Uh, and, uh, you know, at one point, I remember it was valued at uh, half a billion dollars, 500 million bucks. He died, his son took over, his son had been to Yale University, and uh, he brought in uh, management people who uh, come out of colleges where they're taught a very different style than what the old man had, you know. Uh, very impersonal instead, very much based on uh, spreadsheets and uh, the results of, of numbers. Quarterly profits. So, yeah. Yeah, right. Profit and profit and loss, profit and loss. That's all we're going to think about. So there it is. You know, uh, it's, it's not good for the company, really. And it's very rough on the community, extremely rough on the community, really. And uh, Rosie uh, left. <laughs> they picked up their corporate headquarters and moved to Springfield. It's now Roseburg Forest Products Company of Springfield, Oregon. After uh, 80 years worth of uh, being a local business, they are no longer a local business. Now they've still got their mills down here, but the corporate level is being taken care of out of Springfield. The reason they, that, that they said that they moved to, to Springfield was that they couldn't find people who wanted to live here in our county, which uh, I find insulting, but uh, there it is, you know. And uh, They couldn't find the, the elite managers, the spreadsheet people. Who wanted to live in, 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 the, in a rural place, yeah. exactly. They say they want the amenities that uh, Eugene and Springfield offer. Uh, they don't want to live in Myrtle Creek. So 
there is a, a sense of contempt there, isn't there, you know, on their part. Do they actually care about us here? No, they don't. They, they really don't. And then you can see that in the the wages, the living conditions, the work conditions that people experience. Yes, yeah. yes exactly, yeah. Yeah, the average chamber worker now earns uh, 20% less than what they were earning in the late 1970s, early 80s. Those have all been pay cuts. Uh, people talk a lot, of course, about automation coming in and the loss of jobs there, and that is a, a definitely a factor, uh, a major factor. But also a chunk of the of it is this wage cuts. You you pay people less, and then they have less money to to spread around the community. Uh, all through the so-called timber wars, the timber industry was putting out propaganda saying, you know, every dollar that we pay out in wages circulates around the community four or five times. Well, when you cut pay by 20%, now you're contributing to the community as a whole 20% less than what you were. Yeah. Well, um, I want to give you a chance uh, here at the end of the program to maybe give a give your pitch for Overstory Zero, Real Life in Timber Country. Yeah, I just want to make sure folks have heard of that book and go out and get it. Um, I just purchased it. I uh, haven't had a chance to read through it yet, but I'm very excited to. Uh, sure, sure. It's uh, uh, Overstory Zero is a collection of uh, essay, memoir, and uh, lyrical nonfiction writing. Uh, mostly freelance kind of pieces that I did over a period of years. And uh, all of it is set in Douglas County, Oregon here where I live. And uh, much of it is personal experience essay. And so uh, it's a sharing of, you know, what I've been through, what my friends and my neighbors have been through here, uh, living, trying, trying to get by, trying to survive here in uh, Southern Oregon, in small town, uh, small town. Uh, it's, many people did not survive. And uh, that's also <laughs> uh, something that I mentioned in there quite a bit, talking about the people who didn't make it. So uh, it's a good book, it did well. I've sold 7,000 copies of it, I think so far over the years. It's made me a lot of friends that uh, I never had before. Nice. Well, thank you so much, Bob, for taking the time to chat with us on Coast Range Radio. Sure thing, uh, Andrew. Well, that's it, everyone. Thanks for tuning in to Coast Range Radio, a radio program of the Coast Range Association. Uh, we'll be back with you in another two weeks, and uh, we'll talk to you next time.